you will, please take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 4. Some of you will be sad to know this is our final sermon in the series. Um, this is sermon number 565 um, in the book of Colossians. It hasn't been that long. Uh, we've, we've been in, the Col in Colossians since the beginning of the year, so maybe at the end of January, at the beginning of February um, to now. I, for one, uh, lament that I will have to leave the book behind, but um, we have to start a new series, or we get to start a new series on contentment, and then after that, we'll be looking at a series uh, in sort of on uh, doctrines for today. In other words, we'll be looking at particular doctrines, uh, justification, sanctification, adoption. We're going to look at these doctrines, and we're going to see what do these doctrines have to do to us today? They were put together by scholars a long time ago based on the reading of the word, but they were put together for very practical and helpful reasons. So we're going to look at what those reasons are um, after we finish our series on contentment. But today, Colossians chapter 4, verse we're going to begin at verse number 2 to the end of the chapter. I will say that this is Paul's uh, big takeaway and so be, be mindful as we read through it. I won't go through all of the text. There's a few things I'd like to point out to kind of tie it all together. So Colossians chapter 4, beginning at verse number 2 down to the end of the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities, He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him, and Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. Of the Laodiceans. By the way, let me pause here and say this. 
I do not believe that there was a letter to the Laodiceans. I think the letter from the Laodiceans probably is Ephesians. I had no place to put that in the sermon, but I know some of you would come to me and ask afterwards. That's my take on it. I do not believe that there's a lost letter from Laodicea. I believe God's word is complete in all its forms. However, the letter that he's talking about here, there's good evidence to suggest it is a letter from the Ephesians because all of them were circular letters. Okay? So that's my piece on that. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea and say to um, Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this letter with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. All flesh is as grass and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, indeed, this is your word, and these are your people. I pray with all my heart that you might minister to them. They have come here wanting to hear from you, and I pray that that may happen. Bless their hearts and their minds. May they learn to love you and serve you. This is my prayer for all of us. In Jesus' precious holy name, amen and amen. Now, I have a question for you. It's a very important question. When I tell you the question, I want you to leave here, not like right after I say the question, by the way. (laughs) But what I want you to do is I want you to write down the question or have it in your mind, and I want you to think about it. And when you think that you have an answer to the question I'm about to give you, I want you to actually send it to me. And I'm going to pick the question I think gets at the heart of the answer that I think gets at the heart of the question. And I'm going to read it the next time I teach or preach from the pulpit. All right? Everybody get that? Everybody's looking at me. Pastor, just give us the question now. Okay, here's the question. You ready? Suppose for a moment you had the opportunity to write one statement to the next generation about Christianity. Just one statement. And by next generation, I'm talking about people like Callum and Jack and Boaz and Melody, you know, all the little tykes in our church. You had to give one statement to them about Christianity. Just one statement. Here's the question. What statement would contain the most information in the fewest words? What statement would you give about Christianity that would give the most information about Christianity, the most information about Christianity, but do so in the fewest words possible, right? That's your, that's your little sort of uh, homework to some degree. I want you to really think about that, and I want you to send the answer, your, what you think is the answer. Now, you'll be like, Pastor Dennis, why did you say that? Right? What's the purpose of that? Do you just want to want to drum up business here? No. There's a reason why I asked you to do that. And the reason is this. When you look at what Paul is doing towards the end of his letter, that's exactly what he's trying to do. Think with me for a moment how many things Paul has said up to this point in the letter of Colossians. And now he's at the very end, and he's trying to give us a summation of Christian doctrine. And he's trying to do it 
in the fewest words possible. He's trying to give us the most information in the fewest words possible. That's what Paul is trying to do here. And I think he hit the nail on the head with this one statement. In fact, it's a statement he said at the beginning and a statement that he says at the end. Now, this is how I think Paul would answer that question. You might answer that question differently, but this is how Paul answered the question. Notice with me in Colossians chapter 4, verse 18. The first part of it is, grace be with you. Grace be with you. Now, if you hold your place there and you flip to the very beginning of the letter, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 2, here's how Paul begins the letter. He begins the letter by saying, To the saints and faithful brothers, to Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Do you see that? So Paul would answer the question like this. This is, the, this is sort of the statement that Paul would give about our Christian faith that packs the most information in the fewest words. I think Paul would say something like this. Grace to you and grace be with you. In fact, if you are looking for a Bible study, and I know you all are, read all of Paul's letters, the beginning portion and the ending portion, beginning with Romans all the way to 2 Timothy, and I promise you Paul begins and ends the same way. Grace to you and grace be with you. Why is that? Paul, more than any other author in the New Testament, I would say in the entire Bible, was obsessed with grace. Paul was obsessed with grace. There is not a book that Paul wrote that he didn't give an extensive discourse on the matter of grace. And he summarizes it with these two statements, one at the very beginning and one at the very end. Grace to you and grace be with you. And for the time that I have remaining, I want to look at those two statements. And I want to see how they fold in to his final greetings. First of all, let's take grace to you. What does Paul mean when he says grace to you? Well, Paul means simply, when he says grace to you, he's saying that grace comes from God through Jesus Christ to his people. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you inherit, you inherit the grace of God. It's like an inheritance each and every person gets in here. They get grace. And think about what an inheritance means. Um, when I was in seminary, uh, we were in a prayer group, and seminary, the seminary days were a blur. You know, I was like taking uh, full credits. I was uh, working constantly, right, two or three jobs, and everyone was in the same position. We would go to this prayer group, and every now and then somebody would say, man, I don't know how I'm going to pay for school. And so we would pray for him, and the next day he would come, and he would sit down. He's like, the next time we met for the prayer group, he would come, and he would say, brothers, you wouldn't believe what happened. My great uncle died and left me an inheritance. And all of us would say, yay, praise the Lord. I mean, not that your great uncle died, but that you got an inheritance. And then, sure enough, about two weeks later, somebody else would come. Guys, you wouldn't believe what happened. My, my wife's great aunt died, and she left us an inheritance. And you're always like, yay, isn't that great? that God provided this inheritance for you. And there was times when I was sitting down there thinking to myself, man, I wish someone would die in my family. 
so I could get an inheritance. You know, things were rough. But, but, but we all understand how we feel when we get an inheritance, right? Now, here's, here's the point I want to make here. You don't earn an inheritance, do you? You don't buy an inheritance, do you? You don't merit an inheritance, do you? Then why do we try to do it with grace? Grace is like an inheritance that we as God's people who have been elected by God, by the foreknowledge of God, if you've been elected by God from before the foundation of the earth and you become God's child, you get an inheritance of grace and you don't earn it, you don't buy it, and you, by any stretch of the imagination, do not merit it. And when you understand this, you begin to understand the essence of the Christian faith. The writers of the Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter Catechism, for those of you that don't know, the Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter Catechism, is a document that summarizes the theology of the Bible according to the Reformed tradition. And when they talk about justification, how we're saved, adoption, how we cut into the family of God, sanctification, how we come, become more like Christ, when they talk about those three things, the phraseology that they start with is this, justification is an act of God's free grace. Adoption is an act of God's free grace. Sanctification is an act of God's free grace. Do you understand? Every aspect of your justification, adoption, and sanctification all come as an act of God's free grace. What does that mean, an act of God's free grace? It means something God gives to you freely, regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done. Doesn't matter if you, what home you grew up in. All of us get the same inheritance when we come to Christ. And it's completely free. And beloved, when you understand this reality, Christianity becomes more real to you. For those of us that understand that justification, sanctification, adoption come by God's free grace, this helps us, this helps us to crush pride in our life. How can you be prideful if you've been given an inheritance? I know some people that's tried. When I was growing up, there was Paris Hilton. And she got an inheritance. And it was the worst thing in the world. You don't give people like that that much money. Right? And bless the Lord, every time I turned on television, she acted like she worked for every penny of it. That's ridiculous. No one in here who's been given God's grace should be prideful. It also crushes self-righteousness. No, you always meet Christians that are self-righteous. They believe that just because they pray and go to church and they're raising a godly family, they're better than other people. Well, that should be far from you. When you understand the grace of God, it crushes self-righteousness. But you know what it also does? It fosters humility. Nothing fosters humility more than realizing that you have been given grace. It should sweep over your soul, where you as God's people are humble. This is the essence of the Christian faith, that grace came to you. 
and therefore you have inherited it. But also, notice at the end of this passage, Colossians chapter 4, verse number 18, Paul says, grace be with you. What does he mean by grace be with you? I think Paul here has in mind the psalmist in Psalm 23, David, where he says, surely goodness and mercy shall follow you where? All the days of your life. That's the picture of grace. Grace is with us, meaning that grace follows us all the days of our life. That's what grace does. And the power of God's grace is certainly seen in this passage from verse 7 down through verse number 18. I'm just going to take a few names to show you. Because sometimes we forget, we read these names in the Bible, and to us, those are just names. But if we pause for a moment and consider how the grace of God is seen in these names, you and I can have a greater appreciation of the grace of God toward us. So let's take a few of these names. For the first name I want to take is right there in verse number 9, Onesimus. Well, Onesimus was a runaway slave. And he ran away from his master, as you know, Philemon. And Onesimus, under Jewish law, deserved death when he ran away. And as Onesimus ran away, where did the grace of God take him? Right into the arms of Paul. And the Bible says that as he ran away, he ran into the arms of Paul, and Paul made him a faithful and beloved brother of Christ. That's the grace of God. How many of us inside here ran away when we were younger, ran away from what God wanted for us, ran away from God's purposes and plan in our life and lost our way. And now, because of the grace of God, we ran back into the arms of the Lord. That's the grace of God. Amen. Notice with me also Mark. In verse number 10, most of us know Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. We all think that Mark was always on the straight and narrow. In fact, he wrote the book of Mark. Surely he was always a good guy, faithful to the Lord. You would be mistaken. At one point in Mark's ministry, Mark wanted to give up. But the grace of God provided Barnabas, his uncle. And he ministered to Mark. And now, towards the end of Paul's life, Paul says, Mark, uh, Mark the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instruction, if he comes to you, welcome him. Welcome him. What is Paul saying here? Paul is saying now, Mark is fit for the ministry. How many of us at one point in our life wasn't fit for the ministry? So often, how quickly we forget from the point of where we came, that there was one point in all of our lives we were unfit for the ministry of God. And then the grace of God came and made us fit. What about Epaphras? Again, in verse number 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. If you study the life of Epaphras, you'll see that Epaphras was once a pagan in Colossae. He prayed to pagan gods. He grew up in a pagan house. But the grace of God delivered Epaphras from that pagan house, that pagan village. And what does Paul say now? He ran into the arms of his loving Savior. 
and became a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now Paul says he's struggling or agonizing in prayer for the people that he left behind. Beloved, that's you and I. How many of us have been saved out of homes where everyone in our home was a non-Christian or is a non-Christian? We're the only witness. Do you agonize in prayer for them? Do you beg the Lord to save them and bring them to Christ? That's what Epaphras does. That's the power of the grace of God on our life when it's completely changed by God. Or what about Nympha? Now there's some writings that maybe the name here might be a male name and not a female name, but I believe it is a female name, Nympha. Uh, in verse, it says here in verse number 15, that the church is in her house. What does that mean, that the church was in her house? That means she was a patron of the Christian faith. It's interesting that her name means bride, and she showed hospitality to the bride of Christ at a time when it was costly to bring Christians into your house and to have a house church. What do we see God doing with her? God using her in a profound way. And of course, what about Paul? Most of us forget that Paul was once a proud, self-righteous Pharisee. But the grace of God came and humbled Paul. Now, how do you see the humility of Paul? Look no further than Paul's final greetings. There was a time in Paul's life where he would have nothing to do with Gentiles. And here it is in this passage, Paul is depending on Gentiles to carry letters for him and to minister to him. He's calling them brothers and sisters in the faith. How is that possible? Only the grace of God. That's the only thing that's possible. Paul's epiphany wasn't because he read more books or listened to more podcasts or listened to a bunch of sermons. Those were only vehicle for, vehicles for the grace of God. The grace of God worked in Paul's life to where he realized his deep need for Christ and dependent only upon Christ. There's a book that I'm reading now. It's called You're Only Human by Kelly Capick. I know some of you know him personally. You've been taught by him or you've uh, gone to covenant and know of him. And in his book, I think it was around chapter six or seven, he said something profound. He said the greatest, uh, when, when a person in their, comes to a point in their life when they realize or understand that the greatest act of humility, the greatest act of humility they can show is when they realize their deep need for others. Let me ask you a question. Do you realize your deep need for others? You know, one of the ways we realize our deep need for others is when we encourage people to do the work that God has called them to do. Whether that's your elders or your deacons or another person in the church. When you depend on others for your spiritual growth, if you can be a lone ranger Christian in your mind, you're not humble. Because the word of God says we deeply need one another. That's the power of God's grace that overflows the soul. That's what each and every one of us needs. 
Paul says it best in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Now ask yourself the question, how does the grace of God make all of us rich? The word of God is clear. The grace of God saves the lost. It brings back the wayward. It elevates the marginalized. It strengthens the weak. It unites a cohort of people once separated by custom and language and language and nationality. That's the power of the grace of God. That's the richness of the grace of God. By the way, look around you today. Look around you today and ask yourself this question. Under what circumstances would the people in this room be together right now? Name one other circumstance. The only thing that could gather all of us around uh, inside this building today is a couple of things. If we were sports enthusiasts and we were cheering for the same team, right? Or if we were at a political convention, maybe. Or if we were all at a school event, right? Those are the things that gather people together. But ask yourself this question, under what circumstances would each and every one of us be in this room today were it not for the grace of God? Do you see the power of God's grace? I'm sure everyone inside here has different politics. Everyone inside here uh, probably chairs for different teams. I'm sure everyone inside here goes to different schools. And yet here we are today inside this building doing what? Worshiping God together. Why? Because of God's grace. Do not take that for granted under any circumstances. That's the richness of God's grace and mercy. Now, for the big takeaway, I want to quote Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones because I think he says this better than anyone I know. Here's what Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, and I'll end with this. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, It is grace at the beginning and grace at the end. So that when you and I come to lie upon our deathbeds, the one thing that should comfort and help and strengthen us there is the thing that helped us in the beginning. Not what we have been, not what we have done, but the grace of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Christian life starts with grace. It must continue with grace. It ends with grace. Grace, wondrous grace, by the grace of God I am what I am, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Beloved, do you know this grace? Do you? Do you really know this grace? Do you rely on this grace? Or do you rely on your own strength? Do you practice this grace toward others? Are you a tyrant? demanding law? Do you rest in this grace instead of resting in your own knowledge and understanding? Do you depend upon this grace or do you depend upon the paycheck that you get every week? It's grace from beginning to end. It's the scarlet thread that goes all throughout our faith. And it's the grace that Paul points us to every time he opens and closes a book. And I pray that it's the grace you live in each and every day. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think 
of the words of the hymn writer that says, Grace, grace, marvelous grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. It's your grace. It's by your grace we are brought into union with you. It's by your grace we are brought into the family of God. It's by grace that we are sustained. And so I pray that as your people, we might never forget the power of the grace that was at the very beginning. May we never get tired of it. May we never forget it. May we never not live in it. Bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen.